Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. This is the final episode of American Passages, and its focus is on the place of beauty in America's sensibility. I'll be reading a passage from Edith Wharton's 1905 novel, The House of Mirth. The House of Mirth takes its name from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Quote, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. End quote. The house of mirth Edith Wharton has in mind is the world of the wealthy in New York in the last decade of the 19th century, the world that would have been chronicled in the society pages of the newspapers of that day. Lily Bart, the central character of the House of Mirth, has a precarious perch in this world. Her family had been part of it, but only by stretching their money further than it could easily go. When the Panic of 1893 wiped out what wealth her family had, followed quickly by the death of Lily's father and later by the death of her mother, Lily still had connections and an allowance from an aunt, but only an advantageous marriage could secure her place in this exclusive world. Lily is a great beauty who knows what needs to be done and how to do it, and has no moral qualms about doing it. Yet she fails. When the house of mirth opens, Lily is 29 years old and her window is closing. And close it does. She won't live to see her 32nd birthday. What destroys her seems obvious enough. The shallowness, selfishness, and casual cruelty of the world she is a part of, a world Wharton knew well and here lays out with merciless coolness, but there is a paradox at work throughout the House of Mirth, a paradox of the America Wharton understood so well that continues to be a paradox of America today. We are a society seemingly obsessed with beauty, yet at the same time, we are a society that cares nothing about beauty, that in many ways is downright hostile to it. Our first glimpse of Lily Bart comes through the eyes of an acquaintance who sees her lingering about Manhattan's Grand Central Station on a September day. She must be going somewhere, but she seems in no hurry. She is on her way somewhere, to a fashionable estate on the Hudson River for a two-week stay with friends hosting an extended house party. Lily missed the 3.15 to Rhinebeck, and is now waiting for the half-past five. During these lost two hours, Lily will have both a conversation and two unexpected brief encounters that will come back to haunt her. But by half-past five, Lily is on the train and back on her way to the fashionable estate, where she will play cards late into the night, fret over the money she loses that she can't afford to have lost, and then fret more at two little lines she sees on her face in the mirror as she prepares for bed. She has earned her place by being a beautiful ornament to the party, but for how many more seasons would she be able to do so without a rich husband? After this introduction to Lily, 
Warden takes us back ten years to the day Lily's family's fortunes fell, a Saturday after her parents had hosted a Friday dinner party. Lily and her mother are having their lunch when her father unexpectedly enters, unexpectedly because he goes to his office on Saturdays, as he does every day but Sunday, and Lily rarely sees him. But I'm getting ahead. Let's back up to Lily's general state of mind as a teenager, a state of mind in which she is superior to her relatives who live dingy lives. These relatives lived as they did, as all dingy people do, because they chose to, or so Lily believed. Let's join the House of Mirth at the moment Lily is forced to change her view of the world. From The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton Lily was 19 when circumstances caused her to revise her view of the universe. The previous year she had made a dazzling debut, fringed by a heavy thundercloud of bills. The light of the debut still lingered on the horizon, but the cloud had thickened, and suddenly it broke. The suddenness added to the horror, and there were still times when Lily relived with painful vividness every detail of the day on which the blow fell. She and her mother had been seated at the luncheon table over the chauffeur and cold salmon of the previous night's dinner. It was one of Mrs. Bart's few economies to consume in private the expensive remnants of her hospitality. Lily was feeling the pleasant languor which is youth's penalty for dancing till dawn, but her mother, in spite of a few lines about the mouth, and under the yellow waves on her temples, was as alert, determined, and high in color as if she had risen from an untroubled sleep. In the center of the table, between the melting marron glass and candied cherries, a pyramid of American beauties lifted their vigorous stems. They held their heads as high as Mrs. Bart, but their rose color had turned to a dissipated purple and Lily's sense of fitness was disturbed by their reappearance on the luncheon table. I really think, Mother, Lily said reproachfully, we might afford a few fresh flowers for luncheon, just some jonquils or lilies of the valley. Mrs. Bart stared. Her own fastidiousness had its eye fixed on the world, and she did not care how the luncheon table looked, when there was no one present at it but the family. But she smiled at her daughter's innocence. Lilies of the Valley, she said calmly, cost two dollars a dozen at this season. Lily was not impressed. She knew very little of the value of money. It would not take more than six dozen to fill that bowl, she argued. Six dozen what? asked her father's voice in the doorway. The two women looked up in surprise. Though it was a Saturday, the sight of Mr. Bard at luncheon was an unaccustomed one, but neither his wife nor his daughter was sufficiently interested to ask an explanation. 
Mr. Bart dropped into a chair and sat gazing absently at the fragment of jellied salmon which the butler had placed before him. I was only saying, Lily began, that I hate to see faded flowers at luncheon, and Mother says a bunch of lilies of the valley would not cost more than twelve dollars. Mayn't I tell the florist to send a few every day? Lily leaned confidently toward her father. He seldom refused her anything, and Mrs. Bart had taught her to plead with him when her own entreaties failed. Mr. Bart sat motionless, his gaze still fixed on the salmon, and his lower jaw dropped. He looked even paler than usual, and his thin hair lay in untidy streaks on his forehead. Suddenly he looked at his daughter and laughed. The laugh was so strange that Lily colored under it. She disliked being ridiculed, and her father seemed to see something ridiculous in the request. Perhaps he thought it foolish that she should trouble him about such a trifle. Twelve dollars! Twelve dollars a day for flowers! Oh, certainly, my dear. Give him an order for twelve hundred. He continued to laugh. Mrs. Bart gave him a quick glance. You needn't wait, Polworth. I will ring for you, she said to the butler. The butler withdrew with an air of silent disapproval, leaving the remains of the chauffeur on the sideboard. What is the matter, Hudson? Are you ill? said Mrs. Bart severely. She had no tolerance for scenes which were not of her own making, and it was odious to her that her husband should make a show of himself before the servants. Are you ill? she repeated. Ill? No, I'm ruined, he said. Lily made a frightened sound, and Mrs. Bart rose to her feet. Ruined? she cried, but controlling herself instantly, she turned a calm face to Lily. Shut the pantry door, she said. Lily obeyed, and when she turned back into the room, her father was sitting with both elbows on the table, the plate of salmon between them, and his head bowed on his hands. Mrs. Bart stood over him with a white face, which made her hair unnaturally yellow. She looked at Lily as the latter approached. Her look was terrible, but her voice was modulated to a ghastly cheerfulness. Your father is not well. He doesn't know what he is saying. It is nothing, but you had better go upstairs. And don't talk to the servants, she added. Lily obeyed. She always obeyed when her mother spoke in that voice. She had not been deceived by Mrs. Bart's words. She knew at once that they were ruined. In the dark hours which followed, that awful fact overshadowed even her father's slow and difficult dying. This day was ten years ago, but we're told, quote, there were still times when Lily relived with painful vividness every detail of the day on which the blow fell, end quote. Wharton can't give us every detail of that day. No writer can give every detail of anything real or imagined but she gives us enough to see and experience it vividly ourselves, 
and it's worth our time to consider both the details and the commentary were given. Central to the scene are the roses at the center of the table where Lily and her mother are having their lunch. The roses, like the food, are left over from the previous night's dinner party. Though the stems are still upright, their color has turned a dissipated purple. Lily would like to have fresh flowers for the lunch table. Last night's flowers offended her sensibility. We could easily take this as a sign of Lily's shallowness. When her mother tells her that fresh flowers would cost two dollars a dozen, she is unmoved. Like any spoiled girl, Lily knows very little of the value of money. But before we judge Lily harshly, we might note what we're told about her mother's attitude toward flowers. Their beauty is strictly for show. Everything beautiful in her life is strictly for show, including her daughter. Her daughter's beauty, though, has a second purpose, to firmly establish the family among the wealthy by marrying wealth. This becomes even more urgent following the loss of the family's wealth, never enough as it was. Lily knows this and accepts it, at least outwardly. If inwardly she has different feelings, Lily is unaware of them, and Edith Wharton's only suggestion that this might be the case is Lily's continued failure to reel in a husband. When Lily's father comes home and behaves abnormally, laughing in response to his daughter's suggestion that they spend $12 a day on flowers, Lily's mother's response is instantaneous. She dismisses the butler already too late. When the fateful word ruined is spoken, she takes the next step, telling Lily to close the door. And when Lily is dismissed to go up to her room, her mother instructs her not to talk to the servants. Lily's mother's world is a world of appearances. So too is the world Lily ornaments after the death not only of her father, but two years later her mother as well. It's money, not beauty, that matters. More specifically, it's the show of money that matters. This may seem natural to us, but to others it isn't, particularly to the Europeans we left behind when we came to America and to whom we are superior in our eyes. To them, our displays of wealth are part of the vulgarity of Americans, a vulgarity which, if it isn't our chief trait, and if Europe isn't really free of it either, is nevertheless the trait we most display to the world, whatever we might say about American opportunity, or American ingenuity, or American freedom and American democracy. Though it might seem a paradox, this American trait has American origins, specifically America's Puritan religious origins. Among the other peculiarities of the brand of Calvinism that, in Nathaniel Hawthorne's words, formed the bedrock of New England and hence of America, among the peculiarities of American Puritanism was the anxiety it created in its believers about whether they were among the elect, 
those chosen by God before the creation of the world to be with him eternally. There was nothing one could do to earn this, much less ensure it, and so no way to really know if one were among the elect. But there might nevertheless be an outward sign, not outward holiness, but prosperity and the respectability that came with it. Thus, in the 18th century of Jonathan Edwards's Connecticut, the wealthy of his Northampton church, the river gods whose estates lined the Connecticut River, had privileged pews in Edwards's Calvinist church. The one could never be sure they were probably among God's elect. By the time this unspoken belief finds its way from New England to New York, the religious element has, of course, disappeared, but the wealthy remain the elect, the gods of society in the society pages of the 20th century New York Times. They make this evident by the show their wealth makes, and one show that wealth can make is the possession of expensive beauty, the possession of beautiful estates, beautiful art, beautiful clothes, even beautiful flowers. Only the naive, the innocent, as Mrs. Bart believes her 19-year-old daughter to be, could think these things good in themselves. And here is the paradox of America's Puritan heritage. Puritanism valued outward success as evidence of salvation, but it didn't value beauty. Rather, beauty is a trap, a snare, something not only to be distrusted but to be disapproved of. American churches, to take one example, thus wouldn't be the cathedrals of Europe with their soaring arches and stained glass windows and gold-leafed icons. No, they would be modest structures, white and wood-framed and unadorned. And so with beauty. Today, America both goes nuts over beautiful celebrities and disapproves of them, often at the same time. And what of art? Well, it may or may not have aesthetic value, but it better have moral value. This attitude is found across our cultural spectrum. Is a work of art moral or immoral? The opposite ends of our spectrum have opposite ideas of what is moral and what is immoral, but both make this demand, as do those in between, though their ideas of morality and immorality are thankfully less stark. And so what of the House of Mirth? Certainly the House of Mirth disapproves of the society it shows us, and devastatingly so. But what of the American beauty at its heart? What of Lily Bart? Are we to approve of her? And if so, why? Wharton almost perversely gives us no reason to do so. Does she have some inner moral scruple that prevents her from marrying for money? Or does she just dawdle inexplicably and thus miss her train? If the latter, what is the tragedy? Why does her destruction matter when lives far more worthy, far more sympathetic, are destroyed in America every day? But perhaps Lily Bart is valuable not for any moral lesson her story might impart, but simply because she is beautiful, like the flowers at an expensive dinner party. 
like the flowers in the flower box, which Selden sees on the windowsill of Lily's room in the shabby tenement house where her life ends, beautiful and thus valuable as flower gardens are, though they have no purpose as a vegetable garden does, beautiful and thus valuable as a spotted owl is, though its existence impedes the valuable work of loggers and real estate developers, beautiful and thus valuable as were the poems Lily Bart's father sometimes read in the evenings, to the bewilderment and disapproval of Lily's mother. If so, if Lily Bart is a tragic figure simply because she is beautiful and destroyed, and if the house of mirth is valuable simply because it's beautiful, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Edith Wharton was an artist, a creator of beautiful things, and so we mistake if we expect her to disapprove of beauty that is only beautiful for its own sake, with no moral to justify it. I look forward to a day when America can really value beauty for its own sake, as Europe does, to a day when beauty in America is no longer vulgar, when it is no longer mere ornament, when it no longer must embody a moral. But of course, I see that America every day as I walk along my road and enjoy the flower gardens of my neighbors. I hope you've enjoyed American passages. I've enjoyed doing them. And now, say goodbye.